Hey there, Laura here. For the next two weeks, the podcast team is going to be enjoying a spring break. But don't worry, there will still be new episodes each week. We are actually jumping back to share a few of the most viewed sessions from the Church Mental Health Summits in the past. And I can't wait to share some of these fantastic talks and resources with you. And I am so excited to share that the 2023 Summit is now open for registration. We have over 50 speakers from around the world that are going to come together to equip the local church to support mental health in their church and community. To check out the speakers and to register for free, go to churchmentalhealthsummit.com. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and welcome to the Care Ministry Podcast. The show today is a flashback to one of the top-viewed sessions from last year's Church Mental Health Summit with Dr. Xavier Amador. As a caregiver, there is a fine line between supporting someone and project managing someone, and a line that I learned about the hard way. (laughs) Despite people coming to you asking for help and and asking for your opinion on what they should do or, or what they should say or what direction they should go in your life, it's actually not appropriate or even helpful for you to give your opinion or to fix their problem. Oh, this is so hard. This is such a tough spot to be put in, especially if someone is going in a direction that will harm them or make their situation so much worse. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. But we are not meant to rescue people. We're not meant to be saviors of people, only supporters. And if we jump in and fix things for people, there's not going to be any lasting change. Well, there is. It's just that the change isn't personal growth or independence. It's more like codependency, lowered self-esteem, and a reliance on others. And so as supporters, we can find ourselves frustrated watching on the sidelines as people make poor decisions. Dr. Xavier is no stranger to this feeling. You see, Dr. Xavier became a the primary support person for his brother who struggled with mental health. He experienced psychotic features like paranoid thoughts, thought rumination, and delusions, but continued to believe, his brother continued to believe that he was not sick and he didn't need help. So after years of supporting his brother, Dr. Xavier developed a support model that helps navigate caregivers through those difficult conversations and assist them to support their loved ones, to accept treatment and support, despite them not feeling like they need it. In addition, Dr. Xavier is an internationally renowned clinical psychologist, author, and leader in his field. Dr. Xavier is a professor of psychology at the uh, State University of New York. He was professor of psychology and clinical psychology at Columbia University and is the director of psychology at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. His expertise has been called upon by governments, industry leaders, and in the media 
But I'm sure, now I am sure of it, that his top point on his resume was that he was a speaker at the 2022 Church Mental Health Summit. I am sure of it. But seriously, Dr. Xavier's model to help caregivers support those who don't want care is so simple and yet is incredibly helpful. And I know you're really going to enjoy it. So here is Dr. Xavier from the 2022 Church Mental Health Summit. Very honored to have been asked to to present to the Church Mental Health Summit. Uh, As you know, the title of my talk is I'm Not Sick, I Don't Need Help. I'm going to tell you where I first heard that uh, phrase. Uh, And really, my focus is on how do we help people with mental illness who do not understand they're mentally ill. Where I'd like to start is where I started. Uh, This is a picture of my brother, Henry Amador. He's looking in the window. On the little guy, on the little guy uh, driving the car, and we, when this picture was taken, uh, were Cuban refugees. We had escaped Cuba. Our father had been killed in the revolution. Our mother, uh, recently widowed, was raising four children on her own. And Henry was was much more than an older brother. He was uh, my best friend. He was like a father to me, and that relationship continued for many, many, many years. Uh, fast forward in your mind's eye to. Uh, 20 years later, uh, roughly 20 years later, uh, a little less than that. And I got a call from Henry. I was in New York uh, studying psychology, and he was living at home with my mother and my wonderful stepfather, our wonderful stepfather. My mom had remarried. And he called me in New York from Tucson, Arizona, and said, uh, you know, Javi, that was my nickname for Javier, Javi, come home quick. I killed dad. And then he hung up. Um, I was shocked by what he said. I didn't for a moment think he had killed our, our stepfather. He had been odd and, and sort of uh, isolating himself and losing friends, dropping out of college for years. But what I came to realize when I got him on the phone again is that he was now having delusions and hearing voices. He believed that playing the guitar had led to his killing our father, that somehow the music had got, gotten transmitted into our father's head and, and it killed him. Very bizarre delusions. I flew to Arizona to be with the family and uh, really tried to talk my brother into going to the hospital. It didn't work. I kept telling him he's ill. He kept saying, as I promised a moment ago, I'd tell you where I first heard this. I'm not sick. I don't need help. He kept saying that. We fought about it for a week. I eventually, um, well, it was first a gentle disagreement. I eventually got him into the hospital by by calling the police. I know many of you have had experiences like this. It's really hard to call uh, the police on a mentally ill loved one. He got better in the hospital. The hallucinations went away, the delusions uh, remitted, and we came home from the hospital. And that first night, where do you think I found his bottle of antipsychotic medication? I bet you know, in the garbage can. So I went and, and you know, softly with kindness confronted him. And that led to a seven-year disagreement and, and bottling, uh, battle and confrontation where our relationship looked like this, very different than the first picture I showed you. Henry running away from me, running away from mental health care uh, professionals, uh, homeless for a short time, uh, in and out of the hospital four times a year. Uh, our relationship uh, really, really deteriorated and he was really deteriorating. At that same time, I began my graduate studies in psychology and developed the LEAP approach, which I'm going to tell you about in just a moment. And through that approach, uh, Henry uh, accepted medication, accepted treatment. And for the rest of his life, 
uh, stayed on a long-acting injectable antipsychotic medication, had volunteer jobs, two of them, uh, had a girlfriend, uh, had a rich and meaningful recovery, and our relationship was healed as well. This is a picture of Henry on the right, and that's me on the left. Uh, tragically, Henry died being a good Samaritan uh, in a car accident. I don't have time to go into the detail, but he was helping someone out when somebody else lost control of their car. But for 18 years, he was in recovery and treatment. He never understood he had a mental illness. In his case, it was schizophrenia. Still, he was in treatment. And that's really what the LEAP approach is about. It's not about convincing, convincing someone they're mentally ill. It's about building a relationship with them that leads to treatment. So here's a question for you. Would you agree that denial of illness uh, impairs common sense judgment about the need for treatment and services? Would you agree with that? Uh, raise your hand and look around the room. I bet most of you raised your hand. I don't agree. If I take the perspective of Henry Amador and roughly 7 million Americans who have mental illness and do not understand they have an illness, it's common sense to refuse treatment. It makes sense. Uh, let, me ask you, let me ask you a different question. How many of you would inject yourselves with insulin knowing for sure you do not have diabetes? Raise your hand. Now look around the room. There's nobody raising their hands. Of course, it's common sense to refuse treatment. But are we dealing with denial? In fact, the research shows that we're dealing with a symptom called anosognosia. And if you want to uh, pronounce it, here's what it looks like. Here's what it sounds like. Anosognosia. Anosognosia. This is a neurological uh, symptom that we've seen in neurology patients for many, many years. Uh, let me tell you about one neurology patient and a study that, that we conducted at Columbia University. We asked him to draw this clock, and then he drew this. I asked him how he thought he did, and he said, fine, just fine. Uh, so he had anosognosia for this. It's called a construction apraxia. Uh, inability to draw a simple figure. I started pointing at the 12s. How many 12s are they? And he's counting them with me. And he becomes, he doesn't gain insight that he's got a problem. He gets flustered, upset, paranoid, pushes the paper away and says, uh, you've switched, switched the drawing on me. This is not my drawing. So my teaching him, my showing him that he had a problem did not result in his understanding that he had a problem. Instead, it, it resulted in anger and, and frankly, paranoia that I had done something to trick him. <clears throat> so what about people with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, delusional disorder, and bipolar disorder? Uh, evidence from brain imaging studies shows that uh, people with schizophrenia have significant differences if they're aware versus unaware of having a mental illness. Uh, the variety of anatomical structures have been found to be different between patients who know they're ill and those who do not. They all lie in the frontal lobes. So patients who say, I'm not sick, I don't need help for months and years and even decades have different looking frontal lobes. There's other studies I'm not going to be telling you about in the interest of time. Um, three of these studies involved uh, people who had never been on antipsychotic medication. So these brain differences are not caused by any you know, uh, treatment, they're primary to the disorder. So to summarize, if you don't understand you're ill for <clears throat> months, days, months, weeks, years, decades, your brain is looking different and it's actually functioning different. So our diagnostic manual for psychi psychiatric disorders uh, actually has been talking about this for 22 years. Um, the majority of individuals with schizophrenia have poor insight regarding their illness. And evidence suggests that poor insight is a manifestation of the illness, 
not a coping strategy. In other words, it's a symptom, not denial. It may be comparable to the lack of awareness of neurological deficits that we see in stroke. And that was the picture I showed you a moment ago, termed anisognosia. This symptom predisposes the individual to non-compliance with treatment, to refusing medication, and all kinds of other negative outcomes like higher relapse rates, uh, more involuntary hospital admissions, poor psychosocial functioning, and generally a poorer course of illness. Well, that was back in the year 2000. What about today? What about in 2022? Actually, before I talk about 2022, let me emphasize something that I, I kind of jumped over. Uh, I was the co-chair of this revision in the, you know, this is the Authoritative Manual on Psychiatric Diagnosis, the DSM. And together with my co-chair, Michael Flaum, um, this is a unique book in that we, uh, a unique DSM manual in that we impaneled a group of experts from the U.S. and, and overseas to look at the research to uh, really pull together all the research to make what we describe in the manual uh, peer-reviewed, almost like a journal. So, you know, from that peer-reviewed process, a majority of people with schizophrenia don't understand they have it. It's a symptom. These are the headlines. And it looks like anisognosia. So what is our current DSM? Again, this is the authoritative manual on psychiatric diagnosis. Uh, the schizophrenia and other psychotic disorder section says this unawareness of being ill is typically a symptom rather than a coping strategy. It is comparable to the lack of awareness of neurological deficits following different kinds of brain damage. Damage term, Termed what? <laughs> Maybe we can say it out loud on the count of three. One, two, three. Anosognosia. Uh, it's important to be able to describe this symptom if you come away from my talk uh, with some uh, newfound knowledge that that's th this problem, when someone says, I'm not sick, I don't need help, isn't stubbornness, isn't defensiveness, it's not denial. It's another neurocognitive symptom, just like hallucinations, just like hallucinations or delusions. So this includes unawareness of symptoms, not just the diagnosis, but unawareness of the various symptoms that make up the diagnosis. And this anisognosia presents uh, through the entire course of, of illness and schizophrenia, but we also find it from research in schizoaffective disorder. And, and uh, it's a little different with bipolar disorder. It comes and goes, but it is a symptom of the disorder. Anisognosia is, as I said, common in schizoaffective disorder, and this is important. It's the most common predictor of non-adherence to treatment. Now, what does that phrase mean? These are uh, people who will refuse treatment straight out, or they'll uh, uh, secretly stop taking the medication or drop out of treatment. Uh, my brother, when he came home from the hospital, threw his medication in the garbage can. That's where I found it. That's what led to our first confrontation. So this symptom is the most common predictor of refusal of treatment and dropping out of treatment. Uh, it creates a lot of tension in families, let me tell you from my experience. Uh, where I would ask my brother if he took his medication. He said he did, and then I'd find it. You know, I, I found pills under the couch cushions once, and then that led to confrontation and, and difficulty. Uh, more important than that, or as important, I should say, was that he wasn't in recovery. He wasn't getting better. So what's the headline? Our authoritative manual on psychiatric diagnosis for over 22 years describes this problem. And yet most psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and psychiatric nurses 
don't actually know about anisognosia. They, they consider it still to be denial when someone uh, says, I'm not sick, I don't need help. So what about being aware of being mentally ill and uh, how that impacts acceptance of treatment and staying in treatment? Well, awareness of being ill, as you saw on the last slide, is among the top two predictors of medication adherence. What do you think the other predictor is? You know, to take a moment and think about it. Well, looking at the research on the therapeutic alliance, it turns out the other predictor is a relationship with someone who listens to you without judgment, respects your point of view. So it's very active listening. It's very uh, interactive communication. And that person has an opinion. They'd like to see you in treatment. It's not that they think you, it's not that they say, or let's say with my brother, Henry, you need to be in treatment. I learned to say, uh, what you're telling me is that you're not mentally ill, right? And that must be very frustrating for you all those years that I told you you were mentally ill. And he would say yes. And then I would normalize that uh, empathy with, you know, Henry, if I were you, I'd, I'd be upset about it too. And he would ask me, well, do you think I, I need treatment? And I would very humbly say, uh, I could be wrong. And I'm sorry I have this opinion, but I'd like you to try the medication. Uh, and that's what led to his acceptance of treatment, those kinds of conversations over a six-month period, but it worked, and it worked for 18 years. So what do we know about anisognosia for mental illness, that unawareness, and acceptance of treatment? We don't win on the strength of our argument of giving evidence to the person. Don't you see that you're mentally ill? You've been in the hospital. You haven't worked. We don't win on the strength of our argument. We win on the strength of our, of our relationship. That's how we help the person accept treatment, not trying to get them to see they're mentally ill, instead building a respectful, trusting relationship. Now, that's what the LEAP approach is all about. It involves seven tools. I'd like you to imagine a tool belt. These are not steps. These are seven communication tools. So the first tool that I'm going to talk about is reflective listening. Uh, that's reflect, like I did uh, with my brother, I'd say, uh, so what you're telling me is you're not sick. Uh, you don't need medication. And I would empathize with them. I would ask them, well, how does that make you feel that all these years, you know, I was telling you that you were sick and you needed treatment. And he'd tell me very frustrated, very angry. I would normalize it using the LEAP approach. You know, Henry, I'd feel angry too. I'd feel frustrated. And then I'd focus on areas where we agreed, returning to work, uh, having a girlfriend, getting married. Those are areas we could agree on. Staying out of the hospital was a big one and that we could partner on that. And then there are three other tools, delaying giving opinions. Uh, so if when Henry asked me or if any of my patients over the last three decades have asked me um, who, who don't understand they're mentally ill, who have anisognosia, asked me, do you think I'm mentally ill? With the LEAP program, you would say, I promise I'll answer your question. Before I do, can you tell me more about, and then I get them talking some more. So I have more of an opportunity to circle back to reflective listening and, and empathy. When I finally give my opinion, there's the three A's. I apologize, I acknowledge my fallibility, and I ask the person to agree to disagree. So when someone with anisognosia asked me, do you think I should be in treatment? I would say, you know, I'm really sorry, it's the first day. I could be wrong, I don't know everything. That's the second A. And the third is, do you know, agree to disagree? I don't want to argue with you. Um, uh, since you've asked me, remember, remember, if we've been delaying giving our opinion, the person's going to ask us. Since you've asked me, uh, I'd like you to try treatment. 
I think it's worth a try. Not you need it, uh, you're going to benefit from it. Um, sometimes you can get away with that and it's helpful, but generally just, I'm sorry, I could be wrong. I don't want to argue with you. You know, I'd like you to give this a try. And we apologize for acts and interactions that that were painful to the person, that were difficult. Like with my brother calling the police to take him to a hospital. I apologize profusely for that. Um, it's, it's a very respectful thing to do, to apologize. Even if, even if we felt we were in the right, I mean, I felt that I was in the right to do that. Um, so it's, it's really valuable. Let me just cover one of the tools in some detail, leap reflective listening, because it's, it's really different than uh, regular listening. Someone says, I don't need a hospital. There's nothing wrong with me. But with leap reflective listening, I would say something like this. So you're saying, as I preface what I'm going to reflect back, you're saying you don't need hospitalization. There's nothing wrong with you, right? So I'm checking in with the person to see if they felt heard. I don't assume they feel heard. I have to ask them, did I get that right? Another example. I know the delusional example. I know that you're with them and they're trying to kill me. If I heard you, I'm with the people who are trying to kill you. Did I get that right? I don't want anything from you. I didn't ask to come here. I just want to go. That's when I was working inpatient uh, in the hospital. I had this one patient who told me that. Uh, all these phrases come from videotaped uh, research that we, we did. Um, I don't want anything. I didn't ask to come here. I just want to go. So what I'm hearing is you don't want anything from me and you want to go, correct? I have the right to kill myself. I don't have anything worth living for. And who are you to tell me I can't? Look, if I heard you, you have the right to commit suicide. Uh, you don't have anything to live for. And who am I to tell you that, that you can't do that? Did I hear that right? That may feel a little uh, uncomfortable for many of you. But let me ask you, am I agreeing with what the person said? I'm not. I'm reflecting back without judgment. Remember that that uh, therapeutic alliance uh, slide I showed you a few minutes ago. It's without judgment and respect. I'm reflecting back what the person said. I'm not agreeing with it. Uh, look at that first example. If I was agreeing, I would say, you know, I agree with you. You don't need hospitalization and there's nothing wrong with you. I would literally say, I agree. This is not agreeing. This is reflecting back. So a brief review. We listen without judgment, reactions or contradictions. We express empathy for feelings. Uh, related to the mental illness and the anastignosia, we find areas where we agree and that's what we partner on. During the course of this, we also delay giving hurtful and contrary opinions. We give our opinion with humility and respect. And we apologize for acts and interactions that felt disrespectful. Learning LEAP is just like learning a new language. Practice makes perfect. Uh, role play with relatives or, or coworkers and you'll become fluent. General guidelines, absorb what you've heard, usually with reflective listening, emotionally connect through apologies and empathy. And now you can problem solve. You can get to agreement and partnering. Use each of these tools as you need them. So thank you very much for your attention. Thanks again for the invitation. You can find videos, free videos and resources at leapinstitute.org and also our nonprofit, the Henry Amador Center.org or hacenter.org. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. After listening to that session, I was like, okay, this is something that I can actually do. The model that he presents is not overly complicated, but yet it seems so powerful. 
I am sure that you have faced or will in the future be in situations where the person needing help is not wanting help. And I hope that this leap, the leap steps or the leap model that he has shared will be helpful for you. This session is just one example of the many sessions that you're going to have access to at the online or virtual church mental health summit. To learn more about that upcoming event and to register for free, go to churchmentalhealthsummit.com. Thanks for listening and take care.